Today on Reparations in Action. That at the conclusion of the Civil War, 100,000 out of a total of 120,000 craftsmen in the South were Black. Uhuru. You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, The White Lies Shattered series. My name is Jamie Simpson. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with black power. Currently, we are in a 13-week series exposing the insidious lies we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired weekly. Today, we are taking on the white lie that the problem is class, not race. With us today is Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence. Welcome back in Uhuru, Penny Hess. Uhuru, Jamie. Uhuru, thank you for the introduction. I'm really, really glad to be back on Reparations in Action today. And I'm very excited that we can take on this important myth and this question of the problem of race and class and how to understand that. But first, I want to salute my leadership, Chairman Omalia Shatella, who is the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party and the African Socialist International, which is building organization all over the world wherever African people have been forcibly dispersed and are building for the total liberation of Africa and uh, African people everywhere. Very, very exciting, very positive struggle that is has a place for us too as white people under the leadership of this African revolutionary movement to fight for reparations to African people among the white population. So I just, just want to say also that, that as we're recording the show today, uh, we're on the sixth day of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the cop that murdered George Floyd in that brutal colonial violence last year. And that, police murder, while not unusual, was followed by a powerful uprising, months of uprising and demonstration and fierce protests and anti-colonial struggle led by the African working class. I also want to salute Deputy Chair Ona Zanea Shatella, who leads the work of the African People's Solidarity Committee, and to know that, that this organization, the African People's Socialist Party, has always fought for everyone to understand that the central question facing African people, whether inside this country or on the continent of Africa, is colonialism. And when we look at this at this trial that, that's going on now, and it brings back up the whole brutal, vicious, vicious way that the state murdered George Floyd and so many other African people in this country. In fact, the state kills somebody every single day in the form of police inside the borders of the United States, kills predominantly African, Mexican, and indigenous people. One a day is the average, a thousand a year. And, you know, um, we can see that, that this is a question of colonialism that the problem is not racism, it's not uh, the ideas in white people's heads, but it, it is a colonial state power that has the power of life and death over African people um, inside this country and around the world. And that's how we have to begin about thinking about this and, and seeing it. So what we're going to show today is that it's not race or class in the way you usually think of it, because as Chairman O'Malley should tell us specifically proves, the class question in the whole world is located inside of the colonial contradiction or inside of the system of colonialism. And this is a really intriguing statement that we're going to discuss quite a bit throughout this program today. And I want to reiterate that 
we as you know our members of the African People's Solidarity Committee that we are biased on the side of the African working class, the oppressed and the colonized. And that is the position that we're putting out, that there's two sides to every question, but they are the point of view of the oppressor and the oppressed. And we're not just here to give you some interesting history or some cool analysis put forward by Chairman Omali Shatella and the African working class movement, but we're here as part of an effort of a struggle of a movement led by African people to change the world, not just to explain it. So, so the problem is colonialism. And to say that it's just simply race or class in terms of the conditions that are affecting African people obscures this central fact that the central question is colonialism. Um, so we use the analysis of African internationalism, which is a theory of practice, which means it's not something to just sit around and think about, but it's something that has to be the motive force for getting into action, getting organized under the strategic leadership of the African revolution as white people going back into the belly of the beast to take on actual work, to win other white people, to understand the world as it really is. And we can become African internationalists, the worldview of the African working class. We can, we can take that on ourselves. So we come to this question with the understanding, again, that the critical question in the U.S. and the world today is colonialism. And that means the domination of a whole people or people's by an alien and foreign state power or profit, dominated by the entire colonizer nation. And that is us. It's not just a matter of privilege. It's a question that we are the colonizers sitting on the pedestal at the expense of the colonized. So as always, and we've raised this before, that the question of race liquidates the fact that African people are colonized inside the borders of the U.S., just as they are in Africa and elsewhere. And that, you know, starting from the understanding that we always come to, that African people make up the pedestal upon which the entire capitalist system and the social system of the United States exists on land stolen from the indigenous people so this wealth of the birth of capitalism was created by the turning of African human beings into commodities for sale and the forced labor and human trafficking of African human beings that built the wealth that, that the U.S. And, um, and the white world basically experiences and takes for granted. Um, so... So the chairman, Chairman Omali Shatella says that African people, for African people, the struggle against racism is a self-defeating waste of time. And that the struggle of African people, he says, is for political power in their own hands to be able to self-determine what will happen in their community with their economy for the benefit of the African community or itself. So again, all white people are part of the colonizer nation. No, we're not all rich. And some of even, um, not even necessarily prosperous in any way from the white community. I'm not saying that everybody is Bill Gates, but there has to be a recognition that, that uh, white people have always understood coming to the um, United States from Europe that the secret to our success, to uplifting ourselves, has been to unite with our own ruling class and bosses against African people and the colonized. In other words, we as white people have carried out the colonial policy. And this is, this is really, really, um, you know, backed up by um, historic record and historic fact. So let's, let's look at the question of lynching. Um, yes, lynchings were often orchestrated by the white local bourgeoisie 
but white workers enthusiastically carried it out. Um, in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is the headquarters of the African People's Socialist Party in the Uhuru House, in 1914, an African man was falsely accused of killing a white real estate developer and, um, and assaulting his wife. And John Evans was his name, was hung from a light post and brutally tortured and murdered that day in St. Pete. And the assault, the assault on, on Evans was instigated by the highest echelons of white society, including the owners of the local newspaper, which actually is in a different form, still in, in existence today. And and the names of people who, you know, whose names are on parks and beaches and streets in St. Petersburg, Florida today, they're still upheld. This is who instigated this brutal murder and terroristic act against an uh, African man in 1914. And he was, he was lynched. He was hanged in um, right on, on 2nd Street and 2nd Avenue, very, you know, downtown um, very, very area, you know, easily accessible area. And white working people, in fact, about half the population of the city marched down Central Avenue to the site where this man was being terrorized and tortured and murdered. And the majority of white people pulled out their guns. And as as John Evans was being hanged, a white woman fired the first shot up to the lamppost where he was being, was, was being attached and killed, followed by a shot by a white boy, and then scores of rounds of shots just riddling his body. Um, so the entire white working people totally united with the efforts of the ruling class and took it upon themselves to enthusiastically murder and terrorize uh, John Evans in this public lynching in St. Petersburg, Florida, which was also a message of absolute terror to the entire African community, which then was under um, a curfew and basically forced to live on a reservation uh, that was only a few miles wide and a few miles north and south that um, they could only they could not leave after sundown, and this is common across the, the U.S. There were as many as ten thousand festivals called lynchings. We see postcards today of of white people posing their little girls and their children in front of the the lifeless, tortured bodies of African people. You know, we see what white working people did to burn down and murder people and destroy the wealth of Tulsa, Oklahoma, of Rosewood, any place where African people were coming together to be free, to be able to create their own away from, away from white people, to be able to create their own society. They were very successful, create their own economy, and white people came to, um, to destroy that. We see the lynching and, and what's called a race riot in East St. Louis um, in 1919, where uh, Marcus Garvey got his start in a way um, responding to that. It was vicious. It was brutal and up to 300 African people. And that was that had to do with white workers and an issue of, of a union and labor. And we see the Irish draft riot at the beginning of the Civil War, where Irish workers, you know, white workers from Ireland in New York found out that they were going to be drafted to the Union side in the Civil War. And they went out and terrorized, burnt down much of the African community of Manhattan and attacked an orphanage where, where African children were um, killing them. Uh, it was brutal. You know, so this is, this is what white workers have done. It's not a fluke. It's not a fluke. It was the general tendency of white, what white people did over and over again, fighting to be, 
to get a leg up on this pedestal with greater share of the wealth that is stolen from African people and from the colonial domination of the people on the planet Earth, and to be able to, to get their rights um, and prosperity and every, even identity as white by clearly taking it upon themselves to attack African people. So instead of fighting their own ruling class, white workers assaulted, tortured, and murdered African people, along with Mexican and indigenous people, participated in very much, very strongly, and very adamantly in the genocide against um, the indigenous people and, you know, sought to own African people, um, became police based on being slave catchers, uh, everything, you know, to uphold the system, not fighting. Um, there was never a, a situation of black and white unite and fight which is a dream. It was white workers uniting with our own ruling class against African people. That is the history of this country. And, you know, you can read it yourself. It's in, it's in many, many books. You can read a hundred years of lynchings and, and many, many other um, books, including overturning the culture of violence that we have written to show and to expose this history. So, you know, the white left and other kinds of, of academics basically justify the terrorist actions of white workers against African people by, by saying that white pe workers were duped. And they often go into long explanations to say that the majority of lynchings were carried out in, quote, times of economic downturn, which was, must have been every, every time, every period, every year. But if we look at the reality, white workers were not duped. White workers were very clear about what they saw, their interests in unity with the whole colonizer nation, not with colonized African workers. So, again, if we're saying that there's some kind of multinational working class in this country, I mean, that belies what we look out and see. We see that a white worker is not going to have a cop sitting on his neck for over nine minutes to to kill him, um, you know, in this way that happens to colonize people, that happens that the state carries out against against African people in this country. And we can see that there's two realities. Financially, white people have 22 times the wealth of, of African people in this country. And in some places like Boston, have 31,000 times the wealth of African people. Check that out. Um, we can see that the difference in the prison population and even the way that the police act towards African people, um, you know, just killing a child as that happened in Chicago and, and many other places. So, you know, we can look at this whole question of, of workers in 1922, in South Africa, there was a rebellion called the Rand Rebellion, um, and that was an, an armed uprising of white miners in the Witwatersrand region of South Africa. And its slogan was, workers of the world unite to keep South Africa white. With this, Communist Party was part of this, by the way, so you can check that out, the Rand Rebellion of South Africa the interests of, of white workers to be able to, um, to share in the colonial loot, in, in the colonial power over African people. And in, there's a book called uh, Reluctant Reformers by Robert Allen, who is an author. It was written, I believe, even in the 70s, early 80s. And he writes about the um, about the labor movement. He says, no other reform movement has had such a lasting impact on non-white Americans as the labor movement. The longstanding and decidedly hostile attitude of organized white labor towards non-white workers is a central theme of the nation's social history. 
It is, of course, no secret that blacks and other minority workers, which we would say colonized workers, who comprise the vast bulk of the non-white populations have been largely denied by the economic and political gains achieved by organized labor. The history of the American labor movement is one of a long and shameful history of exclusion, discrimination, outright treachery, and open violence directed against Black, Mexican, Chinese, and other non-white workers. In this book, again, it's called Reluctant Reformers, Racism and Social Reform Movements in the United States by Robert Allen, with the collaboration of Pamela P. Allen. And that this was a book that took on the uh, colonial stance, the opportunism and betrayal of the white left, of the socialist movement, of the women's movement, of uh, labor, and, um, you know, just all, all the basic social justice movements historically within the United States and how they betrayed the African population over and over again. But I just wanted to read a little bit more from this. He's saying that, and this is really an important thing to understand. He's saying in the first place, the class of black craftsmen, a product of the slave system, was virtually eliminated. And the historian Charles Wesley estimated that at the conclusion of the Civil War, 100,000 out of a total of 120,000 craftsmen in the South were black. Between 1865 and 1900, however, the proportion of black artisans declined sharply due to the differential advantage accruing to white skilled workers as a result of trade union exclusion. Some craft unions control employment opportunities unlike industrial unions. Highly skilled black workers, masons, carpenters, plasterers, tailors, shoemakers, cabinet makers, painters, seamstresses, etc. were forced to abandon their trades to become sharecroppers Agricultural workers are common laborers. They simply had no alternative. I mean, just to sum that up, because during the time of enslavement, uh, white slave owners, white colonizers who owned African human beings had them making roads, building houses, you know, fixing uh, everything, planting making shoes, making nails is what Thomas Jefferson had a nail factory that he had African children in forced labor in, um, you know, just that African people had the skills, had skills. And between 1865 at the end of the civil war and 1900, African people were terrorized by white people out of those skills, unable to practice them, no white union movement ever welcomed these skills in there, um, inside of the union. And, you know, as, as Robert Allen was saying, black craftsmen were being eliminated. The rural black population was reduced to semi-slavery under the sharecropping system. And that he's also noting that black workers were forced north in what was called the Exodusters and left the South in droves, especially at the end of what was called the, um, the Reconstruction period, and, and moved out and went west, came to Missouri, came to Chicago, uh, went all over the United States looking for work beyond being forced into uh, return to the enslavement of African people through convict leasing and through Jim Crow and sharecropping as the only alternatives. So it says that when they moved north, African workers were brought in at the lowest levels in many of the new industries, although some, such as textile manufacturing, virtually excluded the black worker. These workers were paid one-third to one-half the wages they would earn for the same work in the north. The work period in industry varied from 60 to more than 80 hours per week. 
And of course, the largely unorganized black workers had no say as far as wages and working conditions were concerned. At the same time, most of the skilled and better paying jobs went to white workers, a practice which became institutionalized with the passage of time. Even in older Southern industries, such as tobacco manufacturing, where blacks once held a virtual job monopoly, the introduction of machinery provided a rationale for excluding black workers from skilled occupations. Until World War I, industrial work in the North and Midwest was the province of white workers. And that was, um, that was the case based on terror. That, that wasn't just exclusion, but if, if you know, African people, white workers attacked and burnt down the houses of African, you know, it all goes together. Uh, with this, and it was absolute terror organized into the format of a union that forced African people out of these jobs or forced them into a situation where they made almost no money whatsoever in a factory where they had the skills but could not practice them while white people became the artisans and the skilled labor and much better paid. So another thing that that white unions did was they would hold strikes. And for African people who could never work, it was an opportunity for the first time to actually be able to work while the strike was going on. But of course, white leftists and union organizers attacked African people as so-called scabs for crossing the picket line when they were struggling just to feed their families. And, you know, this is just so um, typical of the colonial situation where African people are robbed of their skills and of all political power and control over their lives. And even in the communist and socialist parties, um, you know, to think that these would, would even make any kind of statement in solidarity with African people did not happen. Um, Often, sometimes in a later period, in the 1930s, communist parties um, used African workers' struggles sometimes to put forward their own aims for white people, and usually um, Africans had to lead many, and did lead many, uh, on-the-job struggles that, that were incredibly powerful, but it was white people that gained that. and. There were, there were even um, com communists who came to the United States, to places like St. Louis, where I am today, um, and who had been struggling with, you know, um, in the movement led by Karl Marx and Frederick, Eng Frederick Engels in 1848, which was nearly a workers' revolution, white workers' revolution in Europe um, at that time. Um, and when they came to the United States, even though they they made had made the call, workers of the world unite, um, they took a stand against against the enslavement, against the ability. Let's put it this way: they took a stand against the enslavement of African people, but from the right, and that was because they saw um, white plantation owners or owners of African people got an edge um, into entering the bourgeoisie and having wealth over other white people and people who were farmers, white people who were farmers and other kinds of things. So they, they hated and detested and fought against um, the colonized African worker, but they stood against the enslavement of African people um, because they didn't want any white people to have an edge um, through becoming holders, owners of African human beings. So, you know, this is, this is basically um, the, the reality. This is, this is our history. And there, there's certainly a lot that we could, we could talk about in that. Um, and I, I wanted to, to read also something that, that the chairman quotes um, and it was actually, the chairman quotes it from Lenin, and Lenin is 
quoting um, Cecil Rhodes, who was the the British colonizer whose ultimate goal was to make um, the entire continent of Africa a uh, British, British colonial subjects. And his slogan was from Cape, the Cape to Cairo, basically from Cape Town, South Africa to Cairo and Egypt. And, um, but he was, he was uh, brutal. He murdered and um, participated in, in genocidal policies against African people in Southern Africa. He was a um, vicious, vicious colonizer and um, whose statue still stands at Oxford University where he, um, where he attended. And he, and he created what was called the Rhodes Scholar Scholarship. But he was very clear about what colonialism must do. And um, in 1917, Lenin quoted Rhodes on the significance of imperialism for the development of Europe. While this quote by Lenin spoke of imperialism in general, the role that Rhodes played in Africa makes clear the significance of Africa in his plans. I'm reading from Chairman O'Malley Shatella, his book Vanguard, The Advanced Detachment from the, of the African Revolution. And um, he's talking about this whole question of colonialism and the opportunism and, and uh, you know, colonial violence of white people. So he's, so um, Cecil Rhodes was, was quoted as saying, quote, I was in the East End of London, which was the working class quarter of London yesterday, and attended a meeting of the unemployed. I listened to the wild speeches, which were just a cry for bread, bread. And on my way home, I pondered over the scene, and I became more than ever convinced of the importance of imperialism. My cherished idea is a solution for the social problem, i.e., in order to save the 40 million inhabitants of the United Kingdom from a bloody civil war, we colonial statesmen must acquire new lands to settle the surplus population, to provide new markets for the goods produced in the factories and mines. The empire, as I have always said, is a bread and butter question. If you want to avoid civil war, you must become imperialist. Therefore, your workers must be clear that they are colonizers and that the, the benefit, the economic wealth um, parasitically extracted from African and colonized people must benefit them, not just the rich. This is what he's saying, that he's talking about colonial equality, colonial ability um, for white workers to walk up the ladder of success and experience their um, what they see historically as their birthright of colonialism, what some people call white privilege, but it is based on the state relationship of colonialism backed by the military, the police, the courts, the prisons, and uh, everything else that upholds the imperialist state. It is backed by that um, and when we were talking about lynchings earlier, you know, we have to remember that no white person ever was ever brought to trial or convicted or indicted for uh, leading or even participating in the um, brutal murders of African people and the torture that's called the lynchings. So, you know, so the chairman has has raised again that the question is not class in a general way that means all workers of the world, and it's not race, because racism is an idea in, the, in uh, white people's heads, but the problem is colonialism again. So the chairman says the struggle against racism is the struggle of the petty bourgeoisie fighting to integrate into the white capitalist world to board the sinking ship of white power. It is a divisionary, diversionary struggle 
reliant on failed philosophical assumptions that must be cast aside as a precondition for moving forward. This is not an innocent issue of semantics. The way this is understood informs our practice. The struggle against racism presupposes one approach and the struggle against imperialist colonialism another. Africans are not a race, but a nation of people forcibly dispersed around the globe. We have been pushed out of history by our imperialist oppressors, partially through the concept of race. Our national homeland has been occupied in various ways for millennia. Our people have been captured and shipped around the world as capitalist commodities. Our labor and land have been violently extracted to build the European nation and the international capitalist system. This is what determines the reality of African people and the contours of the struggle in which we have engaged for more than 500 years. Again, unquote, Chairman Omalia Shetela. The chairman has quoted many times in his history and, and throughout his writings the quote from Karl Marx from the book Capital, in which he is talking about this concept called primitive accumulation of capital, the startup money of capitalism. We know that, you know, if you start a business, it doesn't just incrementally grow and become, you know, a huge multinational corporation. There's, there has to be massive infusion of capital into that to, um, to, to give it wealth. And the system of capitalism itself had startup money. It didn't start from some kind of guilds in Europe and shoemakers who, you know, banded together and built unions and all this kind of thing. No, that, that is ridiculous. It, and here's what Marx said that, that the primitive accumulation of capital came from. He says famously, the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment of, in mines of the aboriginal population. In other words, the genocide and enslavement of indigenous people on their land where there's resources of, of gold and silver were located. Um, and, and Karl Marx says, the beginning of the conquest of the East Indies, which is India, the turning of Africa into a warren of the commercial hunting of black skins, the enslavement of African people, this signalized the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief momenta of primitive accumulation. So this is what, unquote, this is what uplifted the entire white population out of feudalism, created capitalism, turned serfs in Europe into, into the bourgeoisie, into the middle class, and into the working class. It locked them into jobs, an identity, a worldview on the backs of African people. And again, all white people are the colonizers, even white workers. And as white workers, white workers have, have, historically fought fiercely, fiercely to be recognized as white, to be recognized as colonizers. And that even among the least prosperous among us um, will still unite with the white ruling class against African people. Um, from the proud boys to the white left, which is often more vicious than attacking the African working class struggle for power and self-determination and self-definition. Um, than, you know, just than others are. And that there is colonialism inside the borders of the United States, the not-so-invisible wall, the Delmar Divide, as they say here in St. Louis, where you cross a certain street um, and you, you cross Delmar Avenue on, on one of the north-south streets, and you see on the south side, you see beautiful mansions, gated, uh, communities and you go about three blocks north and you're in the heart of the African community, the two Americas, the two realities that all of us who are honest know and experience and, and talk about that there are two Americas. We do not experience the colonial state. We do not experience um, our, we don't talk to our children, give them the talk that they might get shot or killed by the police. This, this is not 
the reality that white people experience. And if we don't understand the question of colonialism, then how can we understand this history? White workers and immigrants were not duped and we're not duped today. On the other hand, we were very clear. And I say we because my great-great-grandparents came from Europe and you know, possibly if you're listening to this, yours most probably did as well. And that the road to white success has always been by climbing up on the backs of African people on stolen land of indigenous people and participation and supporting U.S. imperialist colonialism around the world. And Chairman O'Malley says, again, in the book Vanguard, we have always said that those who saw the fundamental struggle in the world as existing between the minority white workers and bosses of the world were mistaken. We have always said that the essential class struggle in the world does not exist between the white workers and the white ruling class, but is actually concentrated in the struggle against colonialism and economic dependency. Indeed, whether he knew it or not, Marx referred as much himself when in part eight of Capital, he wrote in a quote that we find so important that we use it again in this book, that Marx said, in fact, the veiled slavery of the wage workers in Europe, white workers in Europe, need it for its pedestal, slavery pure and simple in the new world, in the Americas. This statement by Marx is simply another way of saying that capitalism, the entire basis and superstructure of white power as it exists, has its origin in and rests upon a pedestal of African oppression. So what the chairman is saying here, and I think that it's, it's incredibly profound. Again, he is saying that the question of class is actually concentrated in the struggle against colonialism. In other words, the true working class of the world is the African working class and the oppressed and colonized workers of the world. And that African workers, as the working class inside the borders of the United States, inside the belly of the beast, must lead the struggle of all oppressed and colonized workers around the world. And it is the struggle against colonialism and the struggle coming from the pedestal upon which this entire system rests that is the leading force against imperialism. That's why we see the tremendous effect that the rebellions um, in response to the murder of, of George Floyd in this last year have had on the U.S. and the world and brought out the colonial question. And that colonial question is out there because Chairman O'Malley Ishtetela, the African People's Socialist Party, have fought for it for the last 50 years that the struggle of African people must answer the question to what end and must be about the assumption of power in the hands of the African working class that is otherwise all of the conditions that we see every day will continue and continue and continue, will never end. And, it, and the, the fate of African people will not be in the hands of this government or white people. And that the role of white people, including white working people, is under the leadership of the African working class because the African working class, which is the vanguard party, is about winning the liberation of African people and all oppressed and colonized people. It's not something for themselves. It is for the world. And we can see our interests to be part of ending this system and doing our work to go back into the belly of the beast, win reparations as a revolutionary demand, and win other white people to join the forward side of history and rectify our relationship to people on the planet Earth. So the question is, again, colonialism, the class question, the class question in the entire world is located inside of the colonial contradiction, as the chairman says, the reality of colonialism. That's where the workers are. 
And that is where the conscious working class of the world, led by the African working class and all oppressed and colonized working class in unity with them. So this is very exciting. I hope that um, that you will leave us comments or you will tell us what you think of this and that we can continue to deepen this discussion and understand the significance and ramifications of the question of colonialism and what our role and relationship is to it as white people inside the borders of the United States. Uhuru. Thank you, Penny Uhuru. Uh, I think this is such an important discussion and so often the the colonial contradiction that you're talking about um, in, in which the, the entire class contradiction is concentrated in the whole world, as Chairman Amalia Chatella says, that that gets overlooked or denied by that statement. You know, um, it's not about uh, race, it's about class and, you know, really the deeper issues is that it's about colonialism. But I, I think that what, what it that kind of thinking that we hear so often from other white people is that um, it obscures the national character of the oppression of African people, that uh, black people, African people don't suffer because they're not treated as full Americans or full members of Britain or wherever they happen to be, but they were uh, deprived of their homeland, of the wealth of Africa um, in the process of, of building this whole society and that's just something that increasingly we, we have to recognize. And it doesn't, like, as you're saying, it doesn't matter that we're not all Bill Gates. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. The, the, the primary contradiction is not between white workers and white bosses. It's between, it's as, as the chairman has said be, before, the, the primary contradiction is that which happens between nations, which happens between the white nation and African people, really between white people and, and everybody else. And it's, it's, forever it's it's really incredibly bewildering of uh, the extent to which uh we will go as white people to deny that reality and i don't think it it does us a service in the end uh to try and deny that especially when you're looking at things like the Derek Chauvin trial happening right now there are a lot of people that would try to suggest that somehow the cop who murdered George Floyd maybe before the murder of George Floyd and the protests that have changed our consciousness but uh, th that somehow police represent a working class position, for instance, which in some ways you could look at the the cop on the block as a white or the ultimate white worker position, right? In in the same way that uh, lynchings were a white worker pastime. So it's it's really important to confront this if we're going to take on a sincere position of class struggle with the colonial ruling class. I mean, this whole idea that white workers are the leaders of the worldwide struggle against capitalism and imperialism. And that's continued today. And people like Bernie Sanders or, you know, others that, I mean, it's the prevailing view. But what that does is leave the pedestal of colonial domination and imperialism intact. You know what I mean, Jamie? Um, because... The fact is that white workers have our jobs, have the resources to be able to get paid well because, um, because the natural resources are being stolen or the labor or the ultimate labor of procuring the resources is being stolen from colonized people. And, um, but that's never factored in. That's never factored in to, you know, the good salaries that white working people might make. Um, so, or might struggle for in a union, you know, like that we see happening to a certain extent today. And, um, and that when the, when Karl Marx wrote the communist manifesto in 1848, that is 1848. What was happening in 1848? Well, certainly um, the, the kidnapping and sale of African people had been going on for over um, 200 years or more, 250 years. And um, imperialism was going on. Direct colonialism was, was beginning and building. Um, you know, every, all of this was happening in the world, but it's not mentioned 
in the uh, Communist Manifesto. So when it says workers of the world unite, it de facto means white workers. And, you know, the chairman says that, you know, Marx was a product of his times. This is how he could understand the world. But it was the responsibility of African workers, led by Chairman Omali Shatella, to analyze the world as it really is, you know, and to to show and to prove and to bring to the fore the, um, you know, the critical and vanguard role of the African working class inside this country and around the world. That is what is going to bring capitalism down. That is what is going to be when African workers have power. That's what socialism means, you know, in its truest sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you're talking about Bernie Sanders, I'm thinking of, of his uh, rejection of, of reparations, which is so revealing, right? And we, we see these, these white politicians who denounce reparations because of the fear that, oh, no, we're going to alienate the white worker. We're going to alienate this, this uh, block of, of white people. But it's, it's so important that we do see the world as it actually is, which hasn't been our responsibility because we're not the ones sitting on the hot stove like Malcolm X said, it's, it's African people, it's, it's the colonized of the world who are sitting at the center of this contradiction. So it just makes sense that that's where the leadership has to come from. And uh, that that's, seems to be the, the only way out of this is, is to accept that, you know, le- as you said before, left to our own devices, we're just going to perpetuate this opportunistic nightmare and the uh, peoples of the world and the earth itself will continue to languish under this system of, of parasitic capitalism. So it was just really refreshing to, to hear this today, Chairwoman Penny. Um, really appreciate your presence on reparations in action as always. And I think that we can consider this white lie officially shattered, demolished. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshatela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.